I'd invite you now to open your Bibles to Hebrews. We are in the last two verses of this incredible book of God's Word. And it's Hebrews chapter 13, verses 22 to 25 that I want to just open up to you this morning. It's the postlude of this great letter. The final phrases from a pastor's heart to the church, a church that was not in probably desperate crisis, but in levels of crisis where they had seen some prison time. They had been abused by the culture. They had had some attack and they needed encouragement to keep running. If you were to summarize the book of Hebrews, it's in terms of application, it's run and keep running. Become a believer, become a runner, and then marathon and keep running. The theological big, big idea is that Jesus is the fulfillment of all of the Old Testament. Everything ceremonial, everything in the sacrificial system, everything in the Old Covenant that was law was answered in the grace of Christ and the gospel. He went into, as it were, the Holy of Holies and answered that need on the cross for our sins. And the beauty of that is on display through the book of Hebrews. But how do you live it? How does this make, how does it become real to us as Christians? Well, we have to say, okay, I need to be motivated. I needed to be, I need to be motivated because Jesus is best. He is better than everything. He's the pinnacle of existence. If you're like me, it's hard to get there in the malaise of a culture that's turned on upside down on its head, you know, kind of flipping out. We don't know which end is up. It's a lot of things that are going on that distract and confuse and take our mindset off of Christ. And we're just finite beings. We're, we're, not, we're not fully made yet. We're renewed. We're new creatures, but we're still ensconced in this sinful flesh humanity. And we have to fight through that and get there and say, you know what? Jesus is best. Jesus is better than everything and anything that this world has going on. And he's why I run through this race called my lifetime in this world all the way to heaven. That's the point of Hebrews. Now, if you've ever been an exerciser or a dieter or in any kind of uh, thing where it's hard to get to, you know, getting back to things, you understand where I'm coming from when I say, once you stop exercising... It's very hard to even imagine that you ever were an exerciser. <laughs> I, I mean, that's, that's how I live. I'm either doing it and all in and training for something, or I just uh, am not, like at all. And it's very hard for me to be disciplined unless I have a motivator, a carrot, something that I'm looking for as a goal. And that's what Hebrews is putting out in front of all Christians, is the motivation to run, the motivation to start again and to get going. And perhaps some of you in these days have kind of taken a back seat spiritually and you need to get back in the driver's seat and follow Jesus every step of the way. Let's just look now at Hebrews 13. What I'm going to do is I'm going to finish this postlude. And I'll just tell you, I'm going to start a, a sermon style that I've never done before. We've gone two years in the book of Hebrews. And it would be easy just to finish it off and say, well, if you want to find out what was there, there's, 
It's all on record. You can read it or in my notes or you can re-listen to it. But what I want to do instead is I want to take these 13 chapters and create points out of each one. One or two verses and one point that proves that Jesus is better. He's better because of this, better because of that, because that's what the author is doing. He's saying Jesus is better. So run and keep running. So I'm going to finish these verses And then we're going to start in chapter one, and we're going to start to just roll chapter by chapter for 13 points. And how far do you think we're going to get? Well, let's look at verse 22 before we get into chapter one. Hebrews 13, verse 22, the postlude. The writer says, I appeal to you, brothers, bear with my word of exhortation, for I have written to you briefly... You should know that our brother Timothy has been released, with whom I shall see you if he comes soon. Greet all your leaders and all the saints. Those who come from Italy send you greetings. Grace be with all of you. Well, in these few verses, we hear and perhaps even feel a pastor's heart. We don't for sure know who the author is, but... We can sense his care and love for the people of God, and this spills into our own hearts now. The word parakaleo is used twice in verse 22. It's that word of exhortation. And he's saying that I want to come alongside you now. That's what the word parakaleo means. I'm called alongside you. I'm, I'm exhorting you. I'm comforting you to, as, as a fellow marathoner, I want to run alongside you and say, keep going in the Christian life. Bear, there's that word bearing with, exhort, with my word of exhortation. Think about is what that word bear means. Give attention to what I've said through these chapters. This appeal is very loving. It almost seems like he dips into a note of sarcasm at the end of verse 22 when he says, I have written to you briefly because this is a big book, big book of the Bible. This is not the book of Philemon, right? Amen. Okay, we know that. But this letter, as long as it is, is actually something you could sit down and read in an hour. It's shorter than the book of Romans. It's shorter than 1 Corinthians. And I took two years to explain it. So it feels very, very long. But really, he is is masterfully connecting the dots between all of the Old Testament with the New Covenant, with Christ. He's making these connections. And at every turn, all of these connections could have been expanded upon and broadened. And he didn't do that. He was succinct in making his points and bringing up Old Testament Passages that would pop in the minds of the hearers and they would say, okay, I get it. I get it. It really is all about the Lord. Now, verse 23 mentions Timothy, which could be a soft nod towards authorship. I don't want to kind of open this up unduly, but the idea that this could be Paul who wrote this book, kind of, it feels that way to me. I'm, you know, if I were to guess who I think it was, I would say Paul, just because this postlude reads like Paul. The, the, the letter, which is really a preached sermon, doesn't preach like I would think Paul writes, but who knows? Maybe he was in a preaching voice um, doing it that way and, and making those connections. Not sure, but whoever it is, this 
man of God knew Timothy, his brother, and loved Timothy. And Timothy probably was in prison, probably under persecution. And he was hoping with Timothy's release, hey, we can, we can join back with the family of God, probably down in Jerusalem with the early church, persecuted ethnic Jewish Christians who are down there. And maybe he's writing from Rome because there's a mention of the fellowship up in Italy. Those, verse 24, who come from Italy send you greetings. You see that there. There's connections. There's world gospel outreach that's going beyond Jerusalem into Italy, into Rome, into areas of high population where the gospel is doing its work. And this author is trying to make the connections back to the mothership and back to Jerusalem where, where the church began. And, and that's, that's sort of what's going on here. He says in verse 24, in the front end of it, greet all your leaders. Leaders is the same word used in verse 17 and 7. These are the leaders within the church, the high standard, high bar of leadership that carries the weight of um, the, the word of God and ministry. And then those um, also enfolded into all the saints. You have leaders who are in designated roles, but then you have all the saints. Everyone who's a believer is a saint. Everyone who is a believer is hagiazon, is set apart, is set apart in holiness. Uh, the work of Christ is done. It is finished for all of the saints, all part of the body of Christ. Sin's curse is answered for all of us forever. And that note is picked up with the final word in verse 25, that note of grace, where the author says, grace be with all of you. Grace to all of you. Grace of God is the unmerited favor of God. It's the gospel. You didn't do anything to earn your position in Christ. To the Jerusalem early church, Jewish Christians don't return to the old covenant, don't return to the old ways, don't return to what would now be false teaching and a false gospel to do it that way. Offering sacrifices, working through priests or a priesthood that's other than Christ alone, that would be wrong to do. That would be cult religion. Don't go back there. We're all by grace made saints in Christ, whether in Italy or whether in Jerusalem, he's making these, drawing these connections together, saying the gospel is going out to the world, and we're so grateful for that. This is grace to be on, grace be with all of you. So, how do we put grace in action? How do we how do we get into this marathon race by grace? How do we do that? Well, Hebrews twelve. Verses 1 and 2 is very clear that this is a marathon race. I think these are the application verses of the entire letter, and it is the big idea. We're surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses. Let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Be a runner. We run by grace, and we run to Christ who gave us that grace, right? That's the whole point. The whole point is run. If you're going to remember anything from these few moments together, run your race and keep running. Don't quit. Don't drift. Don't stray. Don't trip. Don't fall away. Don't sit on the sidelines. Don't quit and give up. Don't stop running for Christ. 
Don't run to something else. Run and keep running. Um, The Bible, this letter warns against drifting away. Drifting away imperceptibly like in a boat just suddenly going off course, not knowing where you're going. Or dramatically speaking, falling away, which means you were never a runner in the first place. Imagine that. Don't do that. Instead, fix your eyes on Jesus and run. Well, we need to understand verse 2 of chapter 12, looking to Jesus. Why is Jesus better than everything else? The founder and perfecter of our faith. He's the example who went to the cross for the joy that was set before him, despising the shame. He's seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Why is he better than everything? Well, go back to Hebrews chapter 1. We are going to not miss the forest for the proverbial, exegetical, nuanced Greek trees. We're not going to do that, right? We've looked at some trees. We've looked at some branches. We looked at some leaves. We looked at the sap in the leaves. We've looked at the aphid eating the leaf. We've done that for two years. This is a sermon that was preached that was to be listened to in one sitting. And so this is the way that I'm going to try to get at the main thrust, the main idea of this book and tie it together for your life. Chapter one, here's point one. And all of these are Jesus is better than everything. But point one, chapter one, Jesus is better than the angels. Jesus is better than the angels. You go, well, You've lost me because I don't really care about angels, right? Well, maybe some of you do. One of the things that I think is important to see in chapter 1, because there's a lot of talk about angels there, is that angels represent the afterlife. They represent heaven's world as compared to this world. Uh, there's, There's a spiritual realm that we don't see. Now, if we were to see an angel as manifest in the New Testament where angels appear as human men and communicate language that can be understood, that was the same in the Old Testament as it was in the New, then we would understand an angel and we would be in the presence of an angel. But angels are described as incredible, supernatural, created beings that worship God that are in the presence of God's holiness, that are sort of awe-inspiring, take-your-breath-away created beings. And they are fascinating creatures. We wrestle not against flesh and blood, but there are principalities and, and dimensions and things that are coming at us that are demonic, right? Ephesians chapter 6. There are, there, there's this other realm that's out there that people can become fascinated with. And these early church Christians were fascinated with angels. But the point that the author of Hebrews is making is don't be fascinated just with heaven's created beings. Be fascinated with the creator who's Christ. Go to another level in your affections. I mean, it's one thing to, to, I mean, it takes faith to believe in angels, right? Because for the most part, we haven't seen an angel probably, right? Unless we've entertained angels unaware. Or we, we've not seen an angel and we certainly have not seen an angel up in heaven yet. It takes faith and we believe because scripture describes angels to us. We believe they're there. We believe that they are, they are behind the, the, the physical curtain, influencing, protecting, doing things. So it takes faith to do that, but that same faith needs to be raised up to another level where you see Christ. Well, how do we see Christ? Well, look at 
verse 3 of chapter 1. It says, He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of His nature. And He upholds the universe by the word of His power. After making purification for sins, He sat down at the right hand on the majesty of the majesty on high. Look at verse 4. Having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. The Son of God is superior to anything in the unseen realm. He's superior to everything in heaven. He's the pinnacle of heaven. And I already mentioned this. We have to fight through our flesh to get there, don't we? You have to go to Scripture... You have to say, okay, I'm, I'm recentering on the fact that Christ is everything. And then you have to send your heart there. Anything less than that. And if you're like me, you're not really going to run very hard in the Christian life. There's a lot of things that distract us from Christ being the conquering Savior who's at the right hand of the Father on high. Angels distracted people in the early church over the years. People go, well, I don't want to think about Jesus I want to think about something supernatural, but not Jesus. You know, how many angels can dance on the head of a pen? That was something that, you know, Augustus and different people had to address within the church. You're getting fascinated with supernaturalism, but you're not seeing Christ. It's important to see Christ and realize that he's the pinnacle of everything. Revelation 19.10, the gospel, I mean, the gospel writer John also wrote Revelation At the end of Revelation, it says, I fell down at his feet to worship him. Who's he worshiping? The angel that was revealing everything. He was part of the messenger revelation of the message of Revelation was was being messaged through this angel to John, the aged apostle on the island of Patmos. And after he's seeing these heavenly visions of all of what's going on up there in heaven and all of what's going to come to bear in terms of earth, John falls down and worships an angel. Not good to bow down to anything or anyone but Christ, right? And so what you have here is you have John doing that and the angel says, hey, he said to me, you must not do that. I'm a fellow servant with you and your brothers to hold to the testimony of Jesus. Worship God. Revelation 22, a few chapters later, I, John, am the one who heard and saw these things. And when I heard and saw them, I fell down at the feet of of the angel who showed them to me. Again, false worship. It's easy to worship anything and everything except Jesus. And Jesus is the best thing. And when you think in terms of heaven, he's the best of heaven. So we worship him. He's better than anything that's invisible to us. He's the best. He's superior. We don't run after an angel. We run after Christ. Number two, chapter two. Second point. Jesus is better than your family. He's better than family and he's better than friends. And I get this from the remarkable title that Jesus gives himself in relationship to you. Jesus in Hebrews chapter two, and I remember seeing this, it just every time I think about it, it sort of reminds me of the first time I heard this idea, this concept, because it shocked me a little bit. Jesus calls himself your brother, your brother. How humble is that for the second member of the Trinity? He relates to you as a brother. Uh, The Proverbs 
18.24 says, A man of many companions may come to ruin, but there is a friend who sticks closer than a brother. We're not talking about someone relating to you like a physical brother, somebody that you had to grow, grow up with and share a bathroom with and you may or may not like. You may or may not be fellow Christians as physical brothers. We're talking about that kind of friend where you have Christ in common and you love each other because you love the same Jesus. You've got the same gospel blood rolling through your veins and you just connect. Even if you've been apart from each other for a while and you connect, sisters in the body of Christ do this. It's that friendship that's closer than physical brotherhood or sisterhood. Jesus is that to you. Jesus is that to you. He loves you like that. He knows you and cares about you like that. Hebrews 2.11, for he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. That is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers. You see that word one source, that phrase there? It's the idea that His brotherhood supersedes everything that divides anybody on earth. There's a lot of division going around. There's a lot of different things that are happening politically, nationally. There's a lot of division. There's a lot of divide. There's a lot of sort of unrest, right? We all agree. We all know that. We, the gospel gives you this. The gospel not only answers what divides people, it also fortifies in you the opportunity to love and connect with somebody on a way that nobody else can even understand or grasp. It not only bridges the gap between barriers, like knocks barriers down and builds the bridge, it, it creates a super highway of love between people. Like I, when I came to Christ, I began to love people in a way that I never could before. I couldn't even, the natural man doesn't understand the things of the spirit. I couldn't understand what it meant to really love someone as a brother or sister in Christ until God changed my heart. Then barriers drop and things that are trying, people are trying to find this bridge. They're trying to bridge this gap with superficial means and different ideas and different things that are going on. But I'm just here to tell you, when we stand on truth, we're standing for the reality that we can love each other, know each other, care for each other, connect with each other on ways that the gospel only affords, it only gives. You children in the room, you get to grow up in a household of faith, knowing brothers and sisters in Christ in a way that is It supersedes, it's greater and bigger than anything the world could offer. You could be part of a recreation league. You'd be part of, you know, different um, groups, a boys group, a girls group, you know, different leagues, different clubs, and you can connect in those ways. But barriers are broken in Christ and you can love each other, no matter background, no matter race, no matter culture, no matter any of that. In Christ, we are one because we come from one Source, and we have gospel blood running through all of our veins. Isn't that amazing? It's the glory of God that we have in Christ. Hebrews 2 17 and 18 builds on this. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers. That's, that's the humility of the second member of the Trinity. He took on flesh, made like his brothers in every respect. Not almost human, but fully human, and also God. 
so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation, to make satisfaction, to satisfy all of your sins for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. He understands all of your issues. If you've ever had a close and intimate, trusted friend, you know what that's like because it really is a -a one-of-a-kind thing where you can actually tell people the the deepest sort of issues of your life that that you're dealing with in your soul, the sin temptations that you're fighting against, where you've fallen down, where you need to make up some ground spiritually, and you're sharing that with someone because you trust that person. Well, that's, Jesus never excuses your sin. He never is culpable or responsible for your sin. He doesn't want you to sin, but he is right there with you and never leave you or forsake you. Brother relationship there in the foxhole with you to build you up and get you out and move you down the path. Why do we run for a family member? No, we run because of Jesus because he's our brother. All right. Chapter three, chapter three. Don't you wish I preached this quickly through books of the Bible? We would just move. No, you don't want that. All right. Jesus is better than Moses. Jesus is better than Moses. You say, you lost me again. I don't care that he's better than Moses, right? He's better than angels. We get it. He's, he's, better, than, he's better than anything in heaven, right? He's better than any family member, any friend, but he's better than any hero, That might be a way to put it because the early ethnic Jewish Christians loved Moses. Moses was their version of Jesus before Jesus, if that clarifies things for you. Now, the Israelites were not supposed to worship Moses, but think about the close parallels between Moses and Jesus. Moses in the Old Testament was the savior and the the figure of salvation and redemption for the Israelites or the children of God. They were in bondage. They were being beaten. Okay, the Israelites, watch this, before they became the Israelites, the chosen of God, they were in Auschwitz. Okay, they were being tortured under Hitler Pharaoh. They were being killed. Babies were being executed. Things were happening that were horrible. And God chose a man and met with him through a burning bush. The Lord Jesus speaking to Moses, saying, Moses, go and stand for me. Represent Yahweh for their deliverance. He comes. God, his power, his glory, not Moses, but God using Moses through words and actions, was performing miracles through this man, Moses. Moses' staff, he's, you know, declaring for the seed to part. It, it parts. Plagues had, had come. The death angel had killed. I mean, there's a connection between miracle ministry and Moses. There's a connection between Moses being the deliverer. Moses is the one who is able to stand and intercede between the Israelites and God receiving the law, going to untouchable places, an untouchable mountain, speaking to God face-to-face, Numbers says mouth-to-mouth with God, having the glory of God on his face as he comes to speak on behalf of God to the people. Moses was a Christ figure to the Israelites, but not to be worshiped. All of that is background to what the author says here in chapter 3. He says, verse 1, Therefore, holy brothers, 
You who share in a heavenly calling, consider Jesus the apostle and high priest of our confession, who was faithful to him, who appointed him, just as Moses also was faithful in all God's house. For Jesus has been counted worthy of, here it is, more glory than Moses. As much more glory as the builder of a house has more honor than the house itself, for every house is built by someone. But the builder of all things is God. He's basically saying Moses was part of the program. He was part of the plan. Yes, yes, yes. We're not erasing Old Testament history. He was a key figure. He was all of these things. But he was part of the building. He wasn't the builder. The builder is not the building. Jesus is the builder. Follow Jesus. He has more Glory. Now Moses was faithful in all God's house as a servant to testify to these things that were spoken of later. But Christ is faithful over God's house. Here it is, as a son. Anytime sonship is referenced, think deity. Second member of the Trinity. Same essence as God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. And we are his house if indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting in our hope we run the race don't stop running don't quit listen run run this week run keep running come back we'll be in chapter 4.4 i don't even remember what it is oh yeah i do i got it here in my notes and we'll just motor through for these chapters remaining and then we'll start a new book of the bible We'll talk about that this week in a video.